Before we start the program, I want to introduce you to an event that's coming up this August. The Loma Linda Institute of Worship is offering a worship leadership certificate to help leaders and pastors take their congregation's worship experience to the next level. This August 9-12 through 12 event will include presenters Randy Roberts, Adriana Pereira, Nicholas Zork, Wayne Buckner, Richard Hickam, and more, and provide the opportunity to perform on stage with Steve Green and the Heritage Singers. Come sing, pray, write new music, share testimonies and resources, and grow together with like-minded worship leaders from across the world. Go to LLIW.net to register. Welcome to the Loma Linda University Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you will be blessed by the message. Are you a person of peace? I read from Galatians 5, verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Are you a person of peace? I read about a seminar director who asked the seminar attendees to engage in an activity with him that I'm going to ask you to engage in with me. So would you humor me for a moment and close your eyes? And in your mind, through your mind's eye, I'd like you to picture a place a tangible, real, physical place in this world, picture a place that to you evokes peace. What place would you go to to find peace? Now, I hope you think about it because I'm going to ask some of you what place you've been to. So, you have that place pictured in your mind? All right, you can open your eyes. When you thought of peace, you thought of? The coast. The coast, ah, beautiful. For those of us who live out here in California, that makes a lot of sense. When you thought of peace, you thought of? Same, the beach. Same, the <laughs> beach, all right. We have a little bit of a, of a theme going. When you thought of peace? The desert. The desert, all right. That's another that makes sense. Back here, when you thought of peace? A hammock. A hammock. <laughs> all right, I can do that. One more right here. When you thought of peace. Right here at Loma Linda. Right here. Oh, mercy. All right. That's a good answer. I didn't even pay him for that. <laughs> so the seminar leader asked his attendees, would you, would you think of a place? And when they answered as you did, there were similarities in their answers. They said the beach, the waves gently lapping at the white sand, the desert, the saguaro cactus, silent sentinels to the hawk, lazily winging its way overhead. The meadow, the gentle breeze, the flowers. The seminar director then said, now I want you to notice something. While there are differences in all of the different places that you went to, there is one key similarity. And that key similarity is this. In order to get to that place, you got rid of all the people. <laughs> the people disappeared out of that image. Went to the beach, to the desert, to the mountains, and away from all these other people. That's peace. And I get that. That's the same thing I do. But we immediately recognize there's a problem in that. Because the reality is our lives are filled 
with people. Like it or not, of all stripes and all varieties, you turn on the news and there you see people killing other people in the Ukraine. You walk into the office at work and down the hallway you see that colleague that causes you so much conflict. You drive home and there's the neighbor with whom you're fighting over the property line. You answer your phone and you wonder, how did you get through a telemarketer? And you spew a few choice words that you didn't say yet this morning at church. And you think, people, give me the desert, give me the mountain, give me the beach, give me peace, and take all these people with you because I need to have peace. But the problem is people are part of our lives. So I want to ask you the question again. Are you a person of peace? Remember what Paul says here. He says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance or patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Peace. The Greek word is irene. Uh, of, of the different sources I consulted, I thought the best one was William Barclay to describe the meaning of that word. Here's how he puts it. Usually in the New Testament, irene stands for the Hebrew shalom and means not just freedom from trouble, but everything that makes for a person's highest good. Here it means that tranquility of heart which derives from the all-pervading consciousness that our times are in the hands of God. Now, Barclay is right to join together the Greek word irene and the Hebrew word shalom, although I'm guessing that many of you here know the word shalom much more quickly than you do the Greek term. And yet they are definitely related. When millennia ago they sat down to translate the Hebrew Scriptures into the, he into the Greek language, which became the Septuagint, 250 times they rendered the Hebrew term shalom as the Greek term irene. So they're related. That word shalom has many nuances of meaning. It means not only absence of conflict and maybe quiet or peacefulness. It means things like wholeness and completeness and generosity, the good life. It's a very robust word. And Paul says, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. So let me ask you, are you a person of peace? Would that describe you? I think that in order to answer that question, we have to look at least at three pictures in your life and mind. A very big picture, a smaller picture, and the smallest picture of all. The big picture is our world. The smaller picture is our relationships. The smallest picture is our soul. So when you consider those three, are you a person of peace? Well, let's start with the biggest picture, the world. It doesn't take a kindergarten graduate to be able to affirm the fact that our globe, our planet, is riven by rage and shattered by conflict, strife on every hand. The recent pictures that have come out of the Ukraine continue to be heartbreaking, and yet they are far from alone. In fact, Will and Ariel Durant who wrote an 11-volume history of the world, said that in their studies, they covered, as they did this part of it, 3,421 years. That's a lot of time. 3,421 years, they said they were only able to find 
268 years, and those were scattered all through the 3,421, only able to find 268 years where there was true peace on the planet, no wars going on. Less than 8% of the years they assessed. No wonder one person described peace as that blessed moment of quiet in history when everybody stands around reloading. <laughs> Just getting ready because we know it's coming. That's the reality. Our globe is shattered by war. Yet we have often been insulated from it, isolated from it, and so we haven't felt we need to say too much about it, at least in the recent generations been around the world, hasn't affected us as much. So I want to give you just a bit of a window. These are going to be quick hits. We're going to move through very quickly. Some realities about war. Some things we ought to consider. These are drawn from a piece in the New York Times and a piece in the Business Insider. So just notice this. How much does war cost? Vietnam, $500 billion. Korea, $336 billion. World War II, almost $3 trillion. Iraq, $2 trillion. What can war cost each person in the United States? Vietnam, $2,204. Korea, $2,266. World War II, $20,388. Iraq, $8,000 per person. How dangerous is war for civilians? Between 1900 and 1990, 43 million soldiers died in wars. During the same period, 62 million civilians were killed. In the wars of the 1990s alone, civilian deaths constituted 75 to 90 percent of all war deaths. In other words, it's not just the military by any stretch. What is the civilian experience in war? They are shot, bombed, raped, starved, and driven from their homes. During World War II, 135,000 civilians died in two days in the firebombing in Dresden. A week later, in Forsheim, Germany, 17,800 people were killed in 22 minutes. In Russia, after the three-year Battle of Leningrad, only 600,000 civilians remained in a city that held a population of 2.5 million. One million were evacuated, 100,000 were conscripted into the Red Army, and 800,000 died. How does war affect children? More than 2 million children were killed in wars during the 1990s. Three times that number were disabled or seriously injured. And how many genocides have occurred since World War I? Dozens. The most devastating include those in the Soviet Union, where approximately 20 million were killed during Stalin's reign of great terror. Nazi Germany, where 6 million Jews were killed in concentration camps, along with 5 million or more gypsies, Jehovah's Witnesses, and other enemies of the German state. Cambodia, where 1.7 million of the country's 7 million were killed as a result of the actions of the Khmer Rouge. And Rwanda, where more than 1 million Tutsis and moderate Hutus were slaughtered over 10 weeks in 1994. It's mind-numbing. The numbers are too big to compute. No wonder. No wonder Stalin is reputed to have said, one death is a tragedy. A million deaths is a statistic. Because we look at it and it doesn't compute. It doesn't register. 
The ubiquity of war led to one person, a man named Don McLean, saying, we have all kinds of peace monuments in Washington, D.C., because we build one after every war. That's the biggest picture. Now, the temptation is to say, that has nothing to do with me. I can't do anything about that. I'm a church member in Southern California, and there's something true about that. But I did find something that got the wheels turned. I was nosing around on the Internet this week thinking about this theme of peace and came across a group, a movement really, that was called A Year Without War. It's a group of young adults and also some older adults who have come together and said, we can't just be silent. We can't just not say anything. We need to speak in some fashion. And so, pardon me, they started this movement. I want to read you the statement on their homepage. Here's what it says. We are nonpartisan and nonreligious. We are neither anti-military nor a peace movement. We are a dedicated and engaged group of community activists with a simple, clear mission to stop war for one whole year. We know that conflict between humans is inevitable. However, we know that war is an outdated and extremely violent means of conflict resolution, costing countless lives and resources. Living in peace is not simply the absence of war. However, the absence of war is the first essential step to living in peace. A year without war is humanity's first step to abolishing war. Our social experiment puts to use social media to give a stronger voice to a growing global community of ordinary people that just say no to war for one year. I don't know enough about this group to endorse them. I didn't have time to follow all the internet trails. But I was caught by two things. One thing that caught me was that this group of people said, we can't just sit idle. We have to do something. In our limited sphere, in our limited way, to make our voice heard, and to say, can we stop the madness just for a year? Just for a year? Can we do that? That caught me. The second thing that caught me is the only thing that will end wars is the coming of Jesus. Because the human heart, with its evil, will not stop. But I must ask, Isn't it fair to say that a group of disciples who follow a leader who is known as the Prince of Peace ought to say something? Because when you look at the life of Jesus, there are echoes of peace throughout his life. At his birth, the angelic chorus sang, Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. At the time of his inaugural address, which we would come to know as the Sermon on the Mount, he stood up and he said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. On the night before his life ended, he huddled with his disciples in the upper room, and he looked at them and he said, My peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. And then before the night was over, he had returned to the theme and said to them, In the world you will have trouble, but in me you will have trouble peace. His first words in Luke's gospel when he appears to the gathered disciples after his resurrection are peace be to you. All through his life, 
there are echoes of peace. So if we say we are the ones who follow the Prince of Peace, maybe we ought to have some things to say about peace in the big picture. Are you a person of peace? There's the smaller picture. Not just your world, but your relationships. The people with whom you rub shoulders every day, the people who live near you or live with you, the people you work with, study with, play with, those people, the people in your lives with which we often struggle. I read a story about an elderly couple in a senior citizen's facility who fought all the time. Fought all the time. Morning till evening, they were fighting, sometimes screaming and yelling at each other. The staff had just about had it. Finally, the staff went in one day and said, that's enough. You cannot fight anymore or we're going to throw you out. They thought about that for a minute. And then the wife turned to her husband and said, Joe, I think we ought to pray. We ought to pray that one of us dies. <laughs> and then after the funeral, I'll go live with my sister. <laughs> Isn't it that way? It's like if we can just get these people out, if we go to the beach, to the mountain, to the desert, if we can just get there without the people, we'll be okay. We'll be at peace. Remember the Peanuts cartoon strip? In one strip, Lucy says to Charlie Brown, I hate everything. I hate the world. I hate the people. I hate everything. And Charlie Brown says to her, I, I thought you said you had inner peace. She says, I do have inner peace. I just have outer obnoxiousness. <laughs> and it seems like that's what affects so many of our relationships between people. Marriages, homes, parents, children. A lack of peace. If there is anything that has augmented that, multiplied that, it's this thing called our devices. Social media. Technology. I really wrestled with whether or not to read what I've decided to read to you because I think it is one example of how that can affect us. Even this morning, manuscript written, outline done, notes prepared, I was still wrestling because it's graphic. It's tough to hear, but it's also pervasive. Written by Jeff Hooten, in a little journal called Citizen years ago, Hooten writes, Forgive me, for I have killed. I have used swords and shotguns, handguns and grenades. I have shot, stabbed, and bludgeoned. I have crushed skulls with golf clubs and hammers and baseball bats. I have slaughtered men and women, drug dealers and crime bosses, soldiers and secret agents, mad scientists and aliens, zombies, and the pizza guy. I've killed hundreds, even thousands, so many that I lost count long ago. I've taken up machine guns, plasma rifles, chainsaws. I have learned to aim for the head. I've killed with Xbox and GameCube, PlayStation and PC. I've killed with joystick, mouse and keyboard. I've killed for hours at a time on screens big and small, on laptops and high-resolution monitors. I've killed in my basement, in my living room, at the local arcade at a neighbor's house with a co-worker's teenage son. I've killed late into the night until 3 or 4 in the morning because my adrenaline was surging, because the kids were safely in bed, because I was simply on a roll, because I was winning and they were dying. Every weeknight I play. 
most nights later than the one before. And every night I slink up the stairs and ease my weary frame into bed, trying not to disturb my wife who went to sleep hours before. My body is spent, yet I cannot sleep. The bedroom is silent, yet I can still hear those ominous refrains. I close my eyes, yet I can still see the pictures of endless corridors, each one leading to yet another door or outcropping, another blind corner, another enemy, another target. Come Saturday morning, I'm at the computer again. That's when I hear it. The muted thud of feet on the stairs. And there, standing to my right, eyes fixed on the screen, is my little boy. I tell him to go back upstairs, but he doesn't budge. In his mind, there's a cartoon on the computer, the likes of which he's never seen before. He somehow knows that this is forbidden fruit, that he, but, but yet he must possess its secrets or at least observe them. I call for my wife, come and get your son. Later on, this boy, who has never operated a joystick in his life, asks me a question I never saw coming. Daddy, can I watch you play the bad game? Forgive me, for I have killed. Jeff Hooten wrote the words. The Apostle Paul wrote some words as well. The fruit of the Spirit is peace. It's just a game. And yet some who study such things says it lights up the aggression centers in the brain and shuts down the centers of emotions like compassion in the brain. Are you a person of peace? It's not just something we put on at will. It's something that Paul says the Holy Spirit weaves into the fabric of our lives, grows toward mature fruit. That's the smaller picture. Are you a person of peace? What about the smallest picture? Your soul, my soul. Years ago, I was in a Bible study group, and I asked the group, Give me a definition or at least something you think of when you hear the word peace. One person said, when I hear the word peace, I think of a hippie with long hair beads flashing the peace sign. And I thought, you've been around the block a couple times. Someone else said, when I think of peace, I think of nirvana. I said, okay, to each his own. Another said, when I think of peace, I think of harmony. All right. And the last one said, for me, peace is a little pill called Paxil. Well, actually, that is true. And when well used, it can be a godsend. What is peace in the soul? I think that maybe the favorite text, and I base this just on pastoral observation over the years, maybe the favorite text 
For people facing hard times in their lives, difficulties, circumstances that have them stirred up inside, just may be a text that appears in Philippians 4, also from the pen of Paul. Man could write, you have to admit. Philippians 4. Do these words sound familiar? Do not be anxious about anything. But in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I've spent a fair bit of time with this passage. And I think what Paul is saying in the first part of the passage, he's talking to us about the attitudinal choices that we can make. He's telling us to do things like be glad to be gracious, to be grateful, to do this all in the presence of Jesus through the Spirit of God. Be glad, be gracious, be grateful. And then in the second part, he tells us what the result will be. And he does not tell us that your circumstances will change. He doesn't say that. There's no guarantee that you can base your peace on your circumstances, even the peace in your own heart. Instead, in the second part, he writes this line that for me for many years was a bit befuddling. He says, the peace of God that passes all understanding. Some versions render it, that transcends all understanding. What does that mean, Paul? I'll tell you what I think it means today. I think what Paul is saying is whatever circumstances you face, whatever is true in the biggest picture of your world, whatever is true in the smaller picture of your relationships, whatever is true in your own life, you can make choices to be glad, to be gracious, to be grateful. And when you do that, he says, you will have a peace that no one can explain. They just can't explain it. It makes no sense. They say, look at John. Look at all that John's facing. Look at what Mary is struggling with. And yet in the midst of all of that, they're at peace. I don't get it. That's what Paul is saying. What happens to you when people see your peace, they'll say, I don't understand that. How do you explain that? That transcends all human understanding. And yet it can be yours centered in the grace of God, by the kinds of choices we make when we face difficulty, to be glad, to be gracious, to be grateful. So I ask you, are you a person of peace? Is the Spirit of God working in your life in such a way that when you look at the biggest picture, you say, I don't know what I can do, but God, if you'll open doors, I'll just make my voice known for peace. In the smaller picture, I'll work for peace in the contexts where I live. I'll do what I can to promote a peaceful and harmonious environment. I love the realism of Paul. In Romans 12, he says to us, it, so far as possible, as much as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. He realizes it's not always possible, but so far as it's possible, as much as it depends on you, in other words, if it's not happening, don't let it be your fault. That smaller picture, and then the smallest picture. Have you come before God? Said, God, here's my life. I'm so grateful you're not angry with me like maybe I grew up thinking, but I can have peace with you 
and I can be at peace in my soul. Are you a person of peace? Once upon a time, in a land far away, there was a king. A king who told his subjects there will be a contest. And the winner of the contest will enjoy riches beyond his or her imagination. Here's what we'll do. I want to award the person who paints the most beautiful depiction of peace with overwhelming wealth. Every artist and every would-be artist in the land grabbed a palette or brush and a canvas and began to slap paint onto the canvas, trying to win the prize. The day came. The great hall had all the paintings, and the king, dressed in regal splendor, strode from one to the next, taking in each painting. People waited with bated breath. Who would win? It came down to two. The first was of a placid lake, nestled among the high mountains, snow-capped, the water of the lake crystal clear, shining like a mirror, reflecting both the fluffy clouds in the sky and the mountains in the distance. The entire scene breathed tranquility, serenity, peace. But then there was that other one. The king stood before it for some time. If that first painting breathed peace, this breathed turmoil. It too was of a mountain lake scene. It too had mountains in the background, but this time the clouds were roiling and dark. You could almost hear the thunder, almost see the lightning, almost feel the ground shake beneath your feet with the raging wind. Great waterfall catapulted into the chasm, sending spray high into the air. It was a beautiful painting, but filled with turmoil. But as the king gazed at it, he noticed that just off to the side from the waterfall was a shrub that insistently clung to the face of the cliff. And within the branches of the shrub was a nest. And on the nest was a would-be mama bird sitting, quiet, peaceful. And the king had his winner. You can't control it all. But you can make a decision whether or not the Holy Spirit will have the privilege of growing fruit in your life. And Paul wrote, the fruit of the Spirit is peace. Gracious God, our world is ruptured, fractured, shattered. For some today, their personal lives are in ruins and chaos. 
And for others, there is turmoil in the soul, uncertainty about the future and uncertainty about you, God, to be honest. Would you somehow descend on us through your spirit? Would you not just plant the tree, but grow the fruit in our lives that we might indeed and truly be people of peace. In Jesus' name, amen. Find more podcasts, videos, church events, and how you can support the Loma Linda University Church at lluc.org.